We definitely know in Idaho, there's specifically pockets of Idaho where there aren't many providers available at all. If you have questions or concerns about your clients and the medications they take, always go to the prescriber because they're the ones who ultimately have their medical license on the line for anything they're doing. And they should be doing things in patients' best interest of their health. I have seen situations where people will not go seek medical attention or they won't let their primary care provider know that they think they may be struggling because they're afraid they're going to be treated differently. Welcome back. This is Something for the Pain, a podcast produced by Project Echo in Idaho, made for Idaho's healthcare professionals working to learn best practices in the fight to prevent, treat, and facilitate recovery from opioid and substance use disorders in communities across the state of Idaho. I'm your host, Sam Steffen. Well, the E stands for extensions, looking where we aim to be. CH is for community healthcare, the welfare you and me. Last episode, we heard from Deb Thomas, CEO of the Walker Center in Gooding, who presented a lecture on motivational interviewing. We also heard from Barbara Norton, director of the Change Clinic in Donnelly, who spoke with us about some of the challenges facing providers of medication for opioid use disorder in rural and frontier communities. On today's episode, episode six, we're going to be hearing a lecture from Ladessa Foster, Licensed Clinical Professional Counselor, National Certified Counselor, Master Addictions Counselor, and Clinical Services Manager at BPA Health in Boise. Ledessa joined Echo Idaho's Opioids, Pain, and Substance Use Disorders series on February 4th, 2021, to talk about the levels of care in addiction treatment. That lecture is coming up on today's episode of Something for the Pain. sessions there's a handful every month echo Idaho. you can earn ce credit while you sit and eat your lunch well the e stands for extensions without further ado here's ladessa foster's levels of care and addiction treatment Thank you. Um, I'm Lodessa Foster. I'm the clinical services manager at BPA Health here in Boise. Uh, We manage the state of Idaho's substance use disorder contract and then also have a large EAP network and work on certification for peer support as well as have a project right now where we're working with suicidal youth. Um, Anyhow, I was very excited to be invited to talk with you today about levels of care and addiction treatment. So let's go over what the learning objectives are for today. Um, I'm going to be talking about ASAM criteria. Um, ASAM is the American Society of Addiction Medicine, and they've put out criteria to help uh, providers determine appropriate level of care for individuals with a substance use disorder. Um, they look at withdrawal management. They look at staffing requirements, um, therapies that are appropriate. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to do a high-level overview of ASAM today. 
Um, by the end of the day, we're going to hopefully have a little bit better understanding of ASAM dimensions, which are very useful and, and required in order to determine the appropriate level of care. And then we're also going to look at um, overview of levels of care, criteria, staffing, and supportive services. Um, so ACM has broken down the criteria by looking at six different dimensions for each individual. Um, they look at acute intoxication or withdrawal potential, look at biomedical conditions and complications. Um, that would be dimension two. Dimension three is going to be emotional, behavioral, or cognitive conditions and complications. Um, dimension four, we're looking at that readiness to change, dimension five, looking at continued use or problem potential, and dimension six is the recovery and living environment. Um, when we look at dimensions, another thing that is useful to remember in the manual, there is an entire section that talks about withdrawal management that it's important to be attentive to when you're, when you're trying to determine the appropriate level of care, um, as well as making sure you're being attentive to looking at um, the adolescent criteria if you're working with adolescents. Um, while it's very similar to adult criteria, you will find that it does differ in, in specific levels of care in some ways that are really important to be attentive to. So we're going to start with uh, 0.5 early intervention. These programs are more educational. They're designed to help participants explore and address um, problems and risk factors related to SUD. SUD, as Ladessa is using it here, is a common abbreviation used to indicate a substance use disorder. Um, as well as to help individuals recognize consequences if they were to continue with ongoing use behaviors. Uh, for criteria to get into a 0.5 program, it's important uh, that individuals do have problem and risk factors related to substance use, but they don't meet DSM criteria. We may see some first-time DUI offenders may get referred for uh, early intervention program. Um, these programs might happen in counseling, uh, individual sessions, could be with at-risk populations, maybe some at-risk youth. Uh, it could be an EAP referral, for maybe a mandatory referral from a manager that has concern about one of their employees. EAP stands for Employee Assistance Program. Um, we might see some of these programs in mental health facilities or correctional settings, and also they can be appropriate for family members uh, of those in treatment to help learn more about addictions as well as to learn more about how to be a support. Um, and as I go through the levels of care today, I do want to just highlight, you probably are all aware, but just I, I need to speak it, not every level of care is going to be covered by every payer source. Uh, level 0.5 is one that individuals oftentimes will end up needing to self-pay for. Um, so when you're working with clients and making referrals, make sure that, that uh, you're aware and that you can, you can talk about that with your clients, that the level of care that's appropriate may not be covered by their benefit package. Um, so you may need to look at um, if um, finances are going to be an issue, you may, you may need to, number one, prioritize health and safety, and number two, possibly look at an alternative level of care. Um, and all levels of care are not available in Idaho or in all parts of Idaho. Uh, level one outpatient is where clients will oftentimes start. Um, admission criteria for level one, individuals are required to meet the criteria for level one in all six dimensions. 
oftentimes where people start, but it could also be a step-down level of care for individuals that have um, made progress in another level and still need some ongoing services. It's also appropriate for individuals that maybe are not ready to commit to recovery, um, but maybe they'll come one hour a week for some services. So it could be a good starting point, provide some motivational enhancement therapies to hopefully help get them engaged. Um, in all levels of care, it's important to have staff that are certified um, or licensed with experience in addictions, um, training and experience in addictions. Uh, it's important that individuals on staff understand the stages of change, as well as the ability to um, identify if there are some mental health symptoms that are creeping in that may be impacting treatment. Stages of change Ledessa just mentioned here refer to a behavioral health model that's often used by therapists and clinicians to help conceptualize where a patient stands at a given time in a behavior change process. If you're unfamiliar with Procrasca and DeClemente's stages of change, we've included a description from Dr. Craig Lotus, a clinical psychologist at the Boise VA, at the end of the episode. For now, let's keep listening to Ledessa's overview of ASAM's levels of care. In ASAM, you will see in every level of care, there's a section that refers to a support systems. When you see that in the ASAM, that does not mean that these people need to be on staff, um, but it is important that you have working relationships with these other um, systems and professionals in your community so you can get your clients in via referral if, if it's not available on site um, quickly within the timeframe specified. So you'll see in level one outpatient that it requires medical and psychiatric consultation is available within 24 hours by phone. Um, so you've got to have a good working relationship with the other professionals in your clients um, circle, treatment circle, as well as be able to have some other entities out there that you can refer to as needed. Emergency services available 24-7. And in all levels of care, it is required that there is affiliation or coordination with other levels of care in the in your community around the state and that you are familiar with what supportive housing programs are available to help get your clients into those housing programs as needed. Um, therapies in all levels of care require at a minimum some one-on-one, some group counseling, um, maybe some family counseling, motivational enhancement therapies. Um, depending on the individuals, they may need some addiction, pharmacology, psychotropic meds, and it may, may be that they're appropriate for a co-occurring capable or co-occurring enhanced program as well, dependent upon their mental health needs. In level one outpatient, these individuals are going to be in treatment fewer than nine hours a week for adults and fewer than six hours a week for adolescents. And generally, we do see that blend of one-on-one -on -one and group therapy. For um, level one in ASAM, they also have a, a separate call out for OTP programs. Um, individuals in these programs are physiologically dependent on opioids and they're going to require that OTP to prevent withdrawal. OTP stands for Opioid Treatment Program. Um, in Dimension 4, they're ready to make some changes, but they're not ready for total abstinence. In Dimension 5, we're going to see these individuals are at high risk of relapse without that OTP and structured therapy. Um, and it is important to note that um, ASAM does not have an OTP for adolescents. 
Uh, we bump up from level one to level 2.1, which is also referred to as intensive outpatient. Um, I've listed some dimensional criteria and you'll see here it differs from adults to adolescents. Uh, for adults, dimension two and three is required plus an additional uh, additional criteria in either dimensions four, five, or six. And for adolescents, you'll see it differs slightly. They have to meet criteria in one and two, plus an additional criteria in three, four, five, or six. Um, so again, I want to call your attention to that, that there is, there is some differences between adult and adolescent criteria. Um, for all of the levels of care, there's also transfer criteria in the ASAM. And you'll see for 2.1, it's those individuals that maybe they started in level one and just it wasn't, it didn't meet the needs, it wasn't intensive enough, and they need a higher intensity treatment program. So they may be bumping up to 2.1, um, or maybe they've met their objectives at a higher level of care, but still need um, some the intensity of services provided in level 2.1. So it could be a step down. Um, they are required to meet dimension four or five for adults and at least one dimension for adolescents. So as you go through all the levels of care, also look at transfer criteria as you have clients moving from one level to another and make sure that they meet appropriate criteria. And this is something that any of the payer sources are going to be looking at to determine are they in the right place. They're going to want to look at that transfer criteria. Um, for staff at 2.1, we again have that interdisciplinary team of licensed and certified professionals, and it's important in level 2.1 that those individuals are cross-trained in mental health. Um, we are going to see more individuals, uh, as we see here, they have to meet criteria in dimension 2 and 3, so we're going to see more individuals with some co-occurring mental health stuff going on. Um, the support system, same as level one, except for we're going to see a need for more ready access with medical and psychiatric consultation available within 24 hours by phone or within 72 hours in person. So as the needs intensify, it's important that that access is more readily available. Um, same therapies as level one, only we're going to see the intensity increase uh, for adults nine to 19 hours a week and for adolescents, six to 19 hours a week. So more group work, um, more case management, more recovery coaching, more one-on-ones, more family therapy, really starting to see the, that level increase. Um, then we move to partial hospitalization, sometimes referred to as day treatment. Again, the admission criteria differs for adults and adolescents. Um, and for transfer criteria, they have to read the, meet the intensity of services in at least one of the dimensions. The staffing required is the same as 2.1, but the support system, again, we're going to see an increase in availability with the psychiatric and medical consultation available within eight hours by phone or 48 hours in person. And any adolescents participating in partial hospitalization have to be given access to educational programs. Um, during the day, make sure that they aren't falling behind in school. Um, the therapies are the same as 2.1, but the number of hours per week or the intensity is increased to 20 hours a week of treatment. We do find with adolescents that these programs oftentimes are going to occur during the school hours, and so they may spend part of their day in classes, either with a teacher in the room or an online class um, for school, and then participating in therapies in between their class hours. 
Then we move to level three, and there are several um, several levels of care in level three, which is residential, starting with 3.1, which is clinically managed low-intensity residential. Um, you'll sometimes hear this referred to as a halfway house. This these services provide 24-7 structured support. Um, it's not the same as safe and sober housing or recovery services or recovery living houses. Um, these do have 24-hour staff available at all times. Um, and so that's one of the biggest differences there. These programs are required to have certified or licensed addictions clinical staff um, and on staff. However, the treatment program itself may be delivered in another outpatient or intensive outpatient program. Um, so you might see someone enrolled in level 3.1 at one agency and enrolled in IOP or OP at another agency. Those abbreviations OP and IOP refer to outpatient program and intensive outpatient programs, respectively. Uh, these individuals are required to have available to them five hours of outpatient or intensive outpatient treatment per week. Um, there needs to be some self-help meetings going on that can be either on-site at the residential location um, or out in the community that are, are easily accessible. Um, and life skills oftentimes is going to be happening within the house itself, um, as well as some intensive case management services. Um, with this level, the support system, it is important to note that it's these organizations need to be able to arrange for pharmacology, psychiatric, or anti-addiction meds as needed. Um, there is that 24-7 staff available and clients are living there, so they need to have access to their meds. Um, and those emergency services and consultation with physician or needs to be available 24-7. Then we have level 3.3, which is clinically managed population specific. Level 3.3 is not available to adolescents. Um, this, these programs are really designed to help those with cognitive limitations, such as a TBI. TBI refers to a traumatic brain injury. Um, if we have adolescents with a cognitive a problem, we're going to see those problems addressed in level 3-5. Um, but for adults, there's a separate call out for 3-3 um, programming. Um, again, really important to have a physician or physician extender um, on staff for 3.3, along with the mental health staff and 24-7 allied professionals. We're going to see that there needs to be 24-7 access um, to MD, PA, MP, or physician extender, uh, daily clinical services are occurring, and those are going to include occupational as well as recreational activities. Then we move to 3-5, clinically managed high-intensity residential services for adolescents. It's referred to as a medium intensity, so you'll see there's a little difference there. There is a difference in admission criteria. Um, this is oftentimes a, or could be a step down from 3-7, which is medically monitored, um, into 3-5 once, once they no longer require that subacute care. Um, the staff or an interdisciplinary team, 24-7 allied staff, uh, important to have phone or in-person consultation available with MD, PA, MP, or physician extender uh, with emergency services also available 24-7. 
again, real close coordination with other levels of care, arranging for medical drug testing and psychiatry as, a, as appropriate. These are daily clinical services. But I do want to point out it's important uh, to monitor medication compliance at 3-5. Um, and if you've got an adolescent in residential 3-5, they are required to be participating in education programming along with their treatment therapies. We then move to 3-7, which is medically monitored. Um, the staff is required to be have on staff an MD, nurse, counselors, as well as behavioral health specialists. The physician needs to be available within 24 hours of admission um, to do an assessment and then as needed thereafter. Uh, an RN has to do an assessment at the time of admission with LPNs um, thereafter to monitor and provide medication administration. Um, additional medical and lab services need to be available on site or through consultation or referral. Psychiatry has to be available within eight hours by phone and 24 hours in person. Again, real close care coordination um, and to assist these individuals in stepping down to a lower level of care once they become stable. Again, it's important to have uh, education services available for adolescents. Then we have level four, medically managed. This is gonna be your, your acute care in a licensed facility, a licensed hospital. Um, the interdisciplinary team is gonna require uh, or include doctors, nurses, counselors, behavioral health specialists, medical monitoring, 24-7, uh, primary nursing and observation 24-7, at least 16 hours of counseling a day, um, seven days a week with a full range of support systems, um, including specialty consultation and intensive care. So these are really your inpatient hospital level of care. Uh, you'll see in this level of care that services are always gonna be individualized for SUD, but there's also gonna be concurrent medical, emotional, behavioral, and cognitive problems being addressed. So um, this is definitely your highest level of care. Counseling and pharmacology are available with, again, real close case management and care coordination to help transition the client to a lower level of care as soon as they're stable. So that is a lot of quick information, um, a lot of information in a quick period of time. But quickly to recap, make sure you're using your ACM to look at level of care dimensional criteria to help guide your treatment planning and get your clients the services they need. Um, pay attention to adolescent and adult criteria as they differ. And if you're considering um, opening a, a program, make sure that you've got the appropriate staff support systems and therapies in place um, to provide the services that you're hoping to provide. Can you give examples of the level of care around the state? This is ECHO Idaho's assistant director speaking, Katie Palmer. Katie often acts as moderator during live ECHO sessions between participants, panelists, and presenters. Sure. Um, there are a lot of individual counselors in the community and programs that offer intervention services, early intervention. Again, we'll see this with a lot of DUI um, mandated referrals, as well as some correctional programs, maybe some school counselors doing some at-risk counseling. Um, a lot of counselors offer outpatient services. Um, most areas of the state have some intensive outpatient programs. Um, 
those are generally going to be a little bit larger in scope and the ability to provide a large number of groups per week. Again, the number of hours is pretty intense. So they generally are made up of more than one counselor in the practice. Um, as far as hospitals, there are a number of private hospitals around the state that have a sub-program. Um, Intermountain Hospital is an example in, in the Boise area. Uh, for level 3-7, an example might be the Walker Center. Um, for some, and Walker Center also has level 3-5. Some examples of, uh, and I don't want to leave anyone out, so I hate to I hate to draw attention to too many programs. Um, Stewards of Idaho also has a level 3.5 program. Um, there are some facilities in Twin Falls that offer 3.1 for adolescents. Um, so there, it kind of just depends on what area of the, of the state you're in and what services are available. If you're looking at what this, what is in the state SED network, you definitely can go to BPA Health's website and, and do a search under providers and, and see what's available where. That again was a didactic presentation from Ladessa Foster titled Levels of Care in Addiction Treatment. That lecture was recorded live during an ECHO session that took place on February 4th, 2021 as a part of ECHO Idaho's Counseling Techniques for Substance Use Disorder series. Ladessa Foster encourages all clinicians providing substance use services to complete comprehensive ASAM training to better understand the intricacies of the ASAM criteria. Ladessa's lecture mentioned the stages of change. I wanted to make sure that we define this a little more clearly for our listeners. To help explain this model, I'm going to bring in Dr. Craig Lotus, a clinical psychologist at the Boise VA Medical Center. Dr. Lotus gave a lecture on the stages of change on April 7th, 2021, as a part of ECHO Idaho's ongoing behavioral health and primary care series. Here's Dr. Lotus. The trans-theoretical model, also called the stages of change, developed by Procrasca and Di Clemente in the late 1970s, was developed by looking at smokers and pairing the people who were able to quit on their own versus those who needed extra assistance or maybe made multiple attempts. And um, actually what some of this research has found is that on average, if I remember correctly, we go through the stages of change anywhere from three to seven times in some of the smoking cessation research. So what are the stages of change? So pre-contemplation, this is usually if a patient is in our office, so thinking more about primary care mental health integration, this may be someone who's coming in for their, their physical exam. Uh, maybe they have no concerns about their tobacco use or their alcohol use or their diet and their, their blood sugar levels. Um, so they may not even be aware that this is an issue. Then moving into contemplation is when we start to acknowledge that there is this incongruence in terms of our behavior and some of the consequences uh, that we're, we're starting to acknowledge and starting to kind of kick the tires on this idea of, is this something that I want to change? And then preparation, our intention to take action to change, action, maintenance, and then termination. I, I'm not a big fan of that word. I don't know why we use that that word to, to signify the end of a therapy relationship. And then relapse. So for anyone who has done substance use disorder work, 
Um, relapse is often part of the recovery process. So this is a conversation you want to have making our, our patients informed consumers. This is what the process tends to look like. Not saying that I'm giving you, you know, a, a get out of jail free card or, or, you know, whatever you want to call it. I'm not encouraging you to relapse. I also want you to be aware that oftentimes we take one step forward and maybe one step back. Um, and we don't want to be overwhelmed by uh, frustration, shame, guilt, self-judgment, if we do find ourselves relapsing or falling back into unhelpful or, or behaviors that we're trying to change. More and more, we're, we're finding that this isn't unique to smoking cessation. This isn't unique to substance use disorders. This seems to be a kind of model that can be applied to behavior change in general and can be very helpful for us as a clinician to think of these stages and where is my patient? Um, where do I want to meet them? And if we are not reading their, their stage of change correctly, we may be trying to kind of pull them to a place that they're not ready or willing to go. A link to the rest of Dr. Lotus's lecture and the slides for that presentation are available in our show notes. If you'd like to watch the Zoom recordings of either of those presentations from today's episode, those videos are currently available on the Echo Idaho YouTube channel, which you can access through our website. PowerPoint slide decks that accompanied those presentations are also available on our website, www.uidaho.edu echo. If you're interested in joining our free live echo sessions to receive continuing education credit, learn best practices, ask a question, or grow your community, please visit our website at www.uidaho.edu echo, where you can register to attend, sign up to receive announcements, donate, and find out more information about our programs. Something for the Pain is brought to you by Echo Idaho, supported by the Whammy Medical Education Program and the University of Idaho, and is made possible by VCorp, the Valley County Opioid Response Project. We here at Echo also want to hear your feedback. We welcome your questions, comments, and suggestions, and invite you to email us at echoidaho at uidaho.edu. And don't forget to subscribe to Something for the Pain using your podcast app. And if you have a moment, write us a review. That's about all the time we have for today. But join us next time when we'll be talking with Monica Forbes, CEO of Recovery United, founder of the Peer Wellness Center in Boise, and The Rock, a recovery-oriented community center in McCall. That's coming up next time on Something for the Pain. Until then, Idaho, take care of yourself. An answer to our prayers Echo Idaho Sign up for Something for the Pain is made possible by grant number GA1RH39585 from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of CDI1 or HRSA. The voices you heard at the beginning of the episode were those of Ladessa Foster, Radhasada Charan, and Monica Forbes, respectively. Big thanks also to the other contributing voices on today's episode, Craig Lotus and Katie Palmer. We'd also like to thank the other members of our Counseling Techniques for Substance Use Disorders Specialist Panel, Scott Jones, Drew Holiday, Sarah Bennett, and Lindsey Brown. 
And a big thanks to all of our listeners, without whom none of this would be possible. Without you, we'd just be talking to ourselves. Lachelle Smith is the Echo Idaho Program Director. Katie Palmer is our Assistant Director. Our program managers are Carly Klein and Lindsay Winters Jewell. Our marketing manager is Lindsay Lotus. Our program coordinators are Kayla Blades, Jessica Whitlock, and Sam Steffen. Topics you can register and more. We'll email you the Zoom link if you haven't come before.